The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along for the ride. Glad to be working alongside Nathan Miller, our producer. This is American Road Trip Talk. We'll be back with the interview right after this. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. Kids studying in college, drinking too much caffeine, overloading on these energy drinks, they end up in the hospital. Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water, co-created with my uncle, Dr. Henry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, who said, Anson, alert drives will save more lives than the maneuver. Whether you are driving, whether you are studying, whether you're just a tired mom, whenever you need to be alert, get alert drops. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. It's scientifically proven. It's doctor approved. Again, it's natural. It's been honored by the United States Congress. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Are we there yet? That's not a question you'll be hearing while cruising around Nevada. That's because here in the road trip capital of the USA, that old cliche about it being the journey that matters more is actually legit. In Nevada, you can kick back in a crowdless state or national park. Gaze up at some of the nation's darkest, most star-studded skies. Meander among the world's oldest living trees. Have your breath stolen by the crystal clear waters of Lake Tahoe. All along the way, you will find the kinds of iconic, wide-open highways where road trip dreams are made. For insider tips about Nevada road trips and unexpected Silver State destinations, Order your free Nevada magazine and visitor guide today at TravelNevada.com slash travel dash guides. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. I knocked one off my bucket list and not just any one, but the biggest one of all. I'm talking about the Big Apple. That's the subject of our time together today. I want to say hello to my partner in life and on the radio, Suzanne Mitchell. Glad to have you join us today. Oh, happy to be here and talk about New York. New York City. For years and years and years, I have dreamed of making a visit to the Big Apple. Didn't know how I was going to pull it off, but Suzanne and I did. And it almost seems miraculous to us, Suzanne, because the opportunity was presented to us and we said yes. Carl Petri, who is... uh, Fan favorite on this show and elsewhere on radio. He's a multifaceted gentleman. His versatility is a wonder unto itself. One of the things he does, less talked about on the air perhaps, is that he goes to New York City quite often and has for decades. If you are so fortunate as to know Carl Petri and his wonderful wife, Sue, you might actually have them operate as tour guides. That's what happened to us. Let's say hello to Carl Petri right now. Carl, we're thinking of you, buddy. Hey, Gary, Suzanne. And we're thinking of you gratefully. What a time we had staying several nights in your home in New Jersey, Kearney, New Jersey, across the river from New York City. In fact, I stood out in the middle of your street 
making sure I didn't get in the way of the neighbor's cars and took several pictures of the Manhattan skyline. It just blew me away, the whole experience. Suzanne and I have talked about all the places we wanted to see. And in the world, the crossroads of the world is a place I told myself so long ago, someday, somehow I had to get there and in very good company with Suzanne, with yourself, and with your wife, Sue. What a time we had. We're very grateful to you, Carl. And I thought for this episode, why don't we bring you on and talk about how it is that people can best plan their first bite of the big apple. You know it like the back of your hand. You introduced us to New York City elegantly and generously. And then I got wondering, well, what would people do if they're starting from scratch and maybe they don't know anybody in New York City or in the vicinity? How would they plan that? So you're the perfect guy to ask. Well, what they should do is, you know, on the first trip, uh, there are a couple places that you must go to. And number one is Times Square. And the reason for it is on New Year's uh, New Year's Eve, that's where you watch on TV, the ball coming down to enter in the new year. So you want to see what that's like. What is what is Times Square like on a normal day and at night? What is it like? And as you saw, uh, first of all, it's always crowded. It never sleeps. Every store is open. Every restaurant is open 24 hours, seven days a week. So that's number. That's the first place you should go. And there's a quite an array of unusual characters that hang around Times Square, from uh, people in costumes to just your average, you know, people from around the world who go to Times Square. This is where they want to go. So people in, in Europe and everything. That's number one where they want to go. And I was happy to take you there on day one. When Gary and I were talking about this interview earlier, I said one of the things that I learned on the trip for anybody who is thinking about going to New York City was the little known fact that you said, as we looked at all of these giant, giant buildings of offices and residences, that the people of New York don't have cars. And yet there were cars everywhere. And so I said, what Carl needs to talk about is if you're going to New York by car, what do you do? Because the people that you're traveling among don't live there. Boy, that's true. Uh, you know, people from New- who live in New York, and when I say New York, I'm talking about Manhattan. Uh, for the most part, they do not own cars. Uh, what they do is they, if they do own a car, they park it into a garage long term and they, they commute around the, the city in Ubers, taxis or buses or subways. That's where they get around. Uh, if you're from the outside and you're coming into Manhattan, word of advice, uh, park your car in a parking lot, pay the $40, whatever, to park it there and either go on foot or go by taxi or some other way. Uh, but don't think you're going to go from place to place to place with your car. That's crazy. Uh, to park your car in Manhattan could cost you for a few hours about $40. And the thing is, there's a minimum charge. So if you get into Manhattan and you go to, let's say, 
one parking lot and decide, hey, I'm going to go to the other end of Manhattan. You pull the car out, go to place number two. That's another forty dollars. So within a day, you could accumulate hundred forty or two hundred dollars worth of parking fees. So it's not really wise to do that. That's that's number one. And uh, just to get into Manhattan, you know, going through one of the uh, tunnels like the um, Lincoln Tunnel or the Holland Tunnel. I mean, that little thing costs you close to twenty dollars in tolls just to get in. I think it's like eighteen dollars now. So this you got to keep in mind if you're going to bring a car into Manhattan. Other people, what they do is they park their cars on the New Jersey side. And they grab a bus and we we Hawken or Hoboken, which is the town that borders the, the river that goes into Manhattan. And they they park their cars in New Jersey. The fees are cheaper and they go into Manhattan and then they start, they go around with their uh, public transportation. But the people, but remember, the people in New York City who live there, for the most part, do not own cars. They really don't know how a car operates. Now, I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to be a wise guy. They really have no concept of an automobile. Uh, I've had New Yorkers in the car when I was coming out of the uh, Lincoln Tunnel, and I was taking somebody to Newark Airport. When I came out of the tunnel, it winds around to head to the major of the New Jersey Turnpike that takes you to the airport. When it came out of the tunnel and was turning left onto this to the major highway, the woman in the car started to scream, and she says, "You're going the wrong way." I said, "No, I'm taking you to the turnpike to take you to the airport." I swear, she was screaming and screaming that I was making a mistake because the car was not going in the right direction because they don't know about highways. Now, I, I know you're going to say, he's obviously kidding me. This can't be true. Trust me when I tell you it's true. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I had one person that was in the car and we came back from a, uh, a presentation that we were doing in New Jersey. And on the way back, the major thoroughfare, which is the New Jersey Turnpike, there was an accident and traffic stopped on the turnpike. It stopped. And it was a big, for miles, it was a big traffic jam. So sitting in the back seat of the car, he says, why are we stopped? And I said, because there's an accident and we're in a traffic jam. We're going to sit here for a while. And he just looked at me very calmly and said, well, go around it. <laughs> I said, I can't. We're in the middle of this traffic jam. He goes, I don't understand. Why don't you just go around it? Because they have no concept of it. So, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, New Yorkers are unusual people in some ways. And when it comes to cars, like people of the borough of Manhattan, they really don't get it. So that's, my, that's the introduction to driving in Manhattan. And a good one it is, a necessary one, that's for sure. When we went into the city three times, it seemed like there was a rationale you had, and it benefited us greatly. The first time we went in, and I didn't know this was coming, Friday night, going to Times Square, walking to Broadway and back, I think I probably committed every tourist violation there is on the books <laughs> to start with. I couldn't help myself, Carl. Suzanne, she was more like a New Yorker. She's from Chicago. She understands big city living. I'm a suburbanite. 
by nature. And so when I was in Times Square, I just looked skyward. I'm sure my jaw dropped. And I was like, uh, look at this immense place. New York City is a place of immensity and intensity and density. And I'm going, oh, my God, people actually live here. This is the crossroads of the world. And I only found out in a subsequent conversation with you, Carl, that you were keeping your eye out for me because I was the most obvious tourist in Times Square on that evening. That's true. I I was your bodyguard. You just didn't know it. It, it was just, I, I couldn't help myself. When you're looking there, I mean, if you are not, perhaps people who've been to Tokyo or London would have similar stories. But when you go to NYC, you are there in a place of such immensity that it's staggering. You have to mentally adjust to where you are in the moment. And as you said, you walk on purpose. You walk quickly. You don't dawdle. That's true. You know, the first thing, like you said, you don't look up and look at the skyscrapers. And as you're walking down the street, you don't stop to look at a skyscraper. That's a dead giveaway. Another thing is, if you notice, New Yorkers walk quick, quickly. They're fast, they're, they're fast walking people. And if you mosey along, they know you're not from Manhattan. And that's another dead giveaway. Or carrying a camera around your, your neck. That's another thing. It, it, it just tells people who you are. And so there I was. I had protection and didn't know. Of course, Carl's a rather big guy, too. Nobody's going to mess with him. Well, and more than one protection, one of the things that surprised me, Carl, was the number of policemen on foot that uh, every block or two usually found one or two policemen who were, you know, together and kind of looking at the crowd. And I think that that surprised me a little bit. And there was a feeling that things were relatively safe. You know, you didn't need to be really scared down in Times Square because help was generally within a block or so of where you were. Does that seem right to you? Absolutely. And what you did not know is that around Times Square, there are undercover cops. They're dressed like tourists. And they mix amongst the people, and and that's the way they they watch what's going on. So you got the uh, uniform patrolman, and you got the undercover patrolman, and they're there all the time. So Times Square is a relatively uh, safe place to be. Of course, you're going to have a crazy every now and then. That's natural with so many people. But overall, you're safe at Times Square. And it was an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. The same applies to the next two forays into New York City that we made together. We were the we were the fearsome foursome. The second time we went to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. That was a very moving experience, Carl, for Suzanne and myself, because beckoning you to the joys of liberty, of freedom, there is Lady Liberty herself. And a short distance away by boat, which is a very convenient way to make that trip, there you have Ellis Island. So you see Lady Liberty, and then when you disembark, you have reached what many immigrants referred to as the Golden Land. But the story is told inside those halls, and there are many pictures. They're blown up so that they become exhibits unto themselves. And walking through Ellis Island, you discover that 
they were welcomed by a tradition of democracy, of openness. You know, uh, you're wretched and you're, you're poor. Come to us and you will find this golden land. But when you get there, you also find a great deal of prejudice. And I noticed, Carl, that Ellis Island is not at all shy about presenting that darker side of the American experience to its newcomers over the generations. Yeah, prejudice against immigrants is nothing new. Uh, yeah, people there, as you saw in the photos, they didn't like the Japanese, they didn't like the Italians, you know, coming in. Of course, time proved that these people were very good, you know, to the to our country. They brought in a lot of talent, a lot of skills. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was an episode of The Sopranos where uh, Tony Soprano takes his son into a, this church, which happens to be in New Jersey. And he says to his son that his relatives that came from Italy, they're the ones that built this beautiful cathedral type church. And then he, he looks at his son and look as, and then says, today, you can't even find people who know how to grow out tile. You know, because that's the way it is. These people are very skilled. And uh, I had a couple of jobs, you know, projects that I was working on here that I did the rough work. And then I would hire People, you know, immigrants like this one uh, company that came in, they were originally from Italy. They came in and they laid the tile down for me. And it's flawless. You cannot find a flaw with the tile work. And that's what these immigrants do bring to our country. So we've been very blessed by these people over the course of the years. Now, my grandfather came in to Ellis Island. Uh, he was a sailor in the Russo-Japanese War. And the Japanese really kicked the pants out of the Russians and the Navy. While he, they were fighting the Japanese, the Japanese sunk three battleships underneath them. The last one, he swam to shore. And as he swam to shore, there was a sign that said, free passage to the United States if you become a coal miner. And he figured the way things are going with him right now, you know, he was lucky to be alive after three ships sunk under him. He decided to take them up on the offer and they took him to Ellis Island. And from there to Pennsylvania, where he became a coal miner. Speaking of New Jersey, Carl, just as a travel tip, you we went to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty from the New Jersey side. and. Right. You had a very good reason for that. Well, first of all, it's, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, like I said, just to drive into New York, you know, costs you almost $20 for the toll. And the parking, of course, is very expensive. We're here in New Jersey. The only thing you have to pay for is the parking, which I think was like $10. So it's, it's really good, uh, you know, financially. And there's less crowds. You get to see uh, this the island where the immigrants came to, because a lot of the trains ended at this Liberty State Park, uh, which is now called, and they would land there and eventually go right to Ellis Island. Our third foray involved, and you had this mapped out in your mind, thank goodness, because 
I didn't know where to go. It just looked like this unbelievably cosmopolitan place. It was mind-boggling for me as a first-timer, as it would be for many people listening to this broadcast and in the future to the podcast, hoping to get there themselves, to have that first bite of the Big Apple. Highly, highly recommended. One of the things that you thought we would enjoy, and we certainly did, was a trip through another section of Manhattan where we got out of the car, walked to Washington Square, and on foot from there to, well, actually, I take that back. We did wind up in a parking garage. Yes, we did. But then we found ourselves in Greenwich Village, storied Greenwich Village that has a generational history with its own chapters to reveal. Oh, yeah. Greenwich Village is is really something to see. Very bohemian. Uh, that's where a lot of artists live, musicians live, and it's always been that way for generations. Uh, the beat generation, uh, Ginsburg and uh, Kerouac, they all lived in a village. And if you go further back, even Edgar Allan Poe for a while lived in a village. So it was, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the wealthier people lived in the village. And as I, I, I think I believe I mentioned this too, that Edgar Allan Poe, when he was living in Manhattan to make money, the rich women uh, or the wives of rich men would hire him to recite his poems at their little parties that they had. And that's how he made his money, going to rich women's apartments and reciting his poetry. And, uh, you know, even like when you walk around, you can see the old buildings that are there um, and you could almost visualize the things that were happening. In Washington Square Park, for example, the, the buildings that are on the south side of it were the same buildings that were there during the American Revolution. And the British had their headquarters near Washington Square Park. Now, at the time, of course, Washington Square Park was a cemetery. And uh, for years, they just kept on bringing bodies there. And oh, not to mention, right around the corner from Washington Square Park was the jail. And, and to this day in Washington Square Park, there is a tree. They call it the hanging tree. And they used to hang the, some of the prisoners there. So this is, all takes place in this little area that we know today as Washington Square Park. And uh, that's where you see musicians go there, uh, performance, performance artists go there, um, people playing games, you know, like chess or whatever. They use that park, not knowing that underneath their feet are probably all these graves. They never dug them up. They just sealed it right on top. And now it's a big playground but underneath it is still a cemetery. And all that history, Washington Square Park struck me as a kind of kaleidoscopic gathering place. People of every ethnicity and every description out there enjoying the weather, the park, and other things together. I was truly impressed. Well, I'll tell you, if, if you really want to go to a big city, this is the big city to go to. There's so much to see. And of course, we only went to a handful of places, but there's so much just Manhattan to see. 
which we didn't get a chance to. But on future, you know, visits, we're going to go there. We're going to go to other places. And you're going to have a blast. You have the other boroughs to see, as a matter of fact. I want to try some mom and pop pizza in Brooklyn, for example, or maybe the Bronx, maybe take in a Yankees game. I mean, the list is endless. It's incredible. And then if, if my luck holds up, I'm going to try to talk you and Sue into driving us to Long Island, but maybe we need to take a train. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all depends where on Long Island, because you know, Long Island is, is pretty, pretty big. It's a Long Island. That's right. It is a very <laughs> Long Island. But uh, Brooklyn is also a lot of fun to go to. And you, can also, even walk, you can even walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. You can walk across it. Oh, sure. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. I'll tell you what, I'd stick close to you if I ever wanted to take the subway. In Greenwich Village, I saw one of the subway entrances, and I almost walked down there, and I go, eh, no, I'm going to stick with Carl and Sue. <laughs> they're, they're leading this tour. But when it comes to transportation, what is the best advice you can give to anyone once they are inside the city? Once you've parked your car centrally, maybe midtown Manhattan, yes, cabs, yes, Uber, but there are places where cars are not particularly useful. Times Square itself has been largely cleared in many areas of cars because they have a lot going on, including a sort of an assortment of kiosks that remind you of a street fair. They didn't want to jam the place with cars anymore, is what I understand. Yeah, they um, years ago, you could drive right through Times Square. I mean, if you look at a lot of um, old videos or films or whatever, you see Times Square and you see cars going through it all the time. Blocking it off from traffic is something new. Uh, this happened, I think, in the past five years or so where cars cannot go into Times Square. There's places where they could cross over Times Square, but they can't drive like down Broadway and, um, you know, it's just goes off the traffic. And when it comes to entertainment venues, the the term endless array applies to New York City as to nowhere else. I think the next time around, Carl, what we need to do is to plot out, we'll go here, we'll go there. I'm going to go see who's buried in Grant's tomb, for example, <laughs> see if we can solve that that mystery. It's, a, it's just an endlessly wonderful vista, and then it becomes your own. You take a piece of the big apple with you in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And it helps if you're with somebody who knows their way around. That's the biggest takeaway for me is that you can enjoy all of New York City given enough time and money, but it's good to be with somebody who really knows the place intimately. And that's certainly true of you and Sue. I'm very grateful, Carl, that you joined us today. I know we'll be doing this again because we do plan to return. Maybe we'll make a museum tour next time or take in the, the various arenas, maybe take in a play or a musical on Broadway. It, there's just so much to see and do. So we wrap it up for now with a big thank you to you, Carl, and to your wonderful wife, Sue. Thank you so much. Oh, and ours as well. Big gratitude and big respect, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. I loved it. Take care. And you as well. The Big Apple, everyone. Take a big bite whenever you can. And thanks for joining us on American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. 